Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 29. Stages, Scenery, Props and Politics. Last time, the theatre buildings of Rome took centre stage, especially that father of all the permanent Roman theatres, the Theatre of Pompeii. I suspect it always did take centre stage, and just as Pompeii intended, the actual entertainments performed in it were overshadowed by the building itself. But time moved on. Pompeii dramatically fell from grace, as did his successor, Julius Caesar. Caesar's successor, Augustus, didn't exactly fall from grace, but his Julio-Claudian dynasty did after about a hundred years, and successive emperors came and went over the next 400 years or so, until the fall of the Western Empire itself. Men, even those purporting to be gods, come and go, but theatre survived in its varying forms to outlive them all. Now it's time to dig a bit deeper into what happened in those theatres in the Roman period. What was the art form like? Who were the people who created it? And what was it like to be in the room where it happened? First off, let's recap on the stage settings for Roman plays. The settings may have developed over time and changed greatly, but we're still talking about a stage and an audience. The basics are the same, but what follows next is really about the theatre buildings, the stages of the temporary and the permanent theatres, where we have some sort of record and there are inevitably some generalisations. However, the evidence that there is suggests that there was a very stable form of stage setting throughout a long period. Here are the basics. The action of every play that we have preserved takes place outdoors in one location. This is in the style of Greek new comedy and lends itself to a simple and static setting. Theatre could be indoors or outdoors, but regardless, every stage had the same basic backdrop, with up to three functional doors that were used for entrances and exits. The supporting structure, be that stone or wood, included columns and alcoves between the doors and decoration around them to represent houses in a street. The side exits from the stage were also used, and there was a convention by later times that an exit in one direction led to the city and in the other direction to the countryside or the harbour. Although we can glean details about the stages and backdrops from existing ruins and decorative wall paintings, it's often the play texts themselves that give us the best evidence for the settings. The prologue to a play will often describe the number of houses involved, the residents of each and their relationship to each other. So, for example, in Amphituro by Plautus, the prologue, delivered by the god Mercury, describes just one door, whereas in the Pot of Gold, also by Plautus, there clearly has to be three doors, one for the miser, Eucleo, one for his neighbour, Megadorus, and one for the shrine to Fides, goddess of trust and good faith. And sometimes the prologue goes further than that. In the Menechmus Brothers, there's a framing device where Plautus very consciously reminds the audience that they're in the theatre, and describes how the same stage setting can represent many different places. This, like all Roman plays, is set in Greece. The prologue says, We're now in Epidamnus as long as the play is being performed. Next time it'll be another town, and the households will change. Now a pimp lives here, then a young man then an old man, then a poor man, then a patron, then a parasite, then a soothsayer. The characters mentioned are some of the stock characters. This habit of consciously referencing the act of theatre, its attributes and its paraphernalia from within the play, is a trait in Plautus that he used often. 
so much so that the term metatheatre has been applied as a description of his plays. Besides the doors, columns and alcoves, the only other permanent feature on stage may have been an altar. There's some textual evidence that Roman stages included an altar to the gods, although religion does not appear to have had the central role it had in Greek theatre. So from this description and the ruins of theatres that we can still see, it is possible to surmise this basic shape and structure. But we can go a little further than that, into the actual decoration of the stage set, albeit from a slightly oblique angle. Some of the more tantalising evidence that we have for stage settings comes from decorative wall paintings in preserved Roman houses. They're tantalising because we can't be certain that they're an accurate representation of theatre sets, or indeed theatre at all, but it seems highly likely that they are. One well-preserved example is from the late 1st century BCE, from the Room of Masks, in the house of the Emperor Augustus in Rome. The association of Augustus with this house is well attested in ancient sources. The story goes that he purchased a house and surrounding land in 41 BCE, but shortly after, the spot was struck by lightning, and Augustus, taking this as a sign, returned the land to public ownership. The Senate then voted him other public land for his house, taking his action as a pious act. His original house was destroyed by fire about 50 years later, but rebuilt and taken on as a state property. The wall paintings in the Room of Masks, which is a modern naming, shows two doors enclosed by porches in a very three-dimensional style. In the middle space between the doors is a decorated section of wall, possibly indicating, or at least giving room for, a third door. To either side of this area are alcoves, with theatrical masks painted above, hence the naming of the room. The paintings are similar on three sides of the room, although on one side a large central portion of the painting is no longer visible. What we can see certainly shouts theatre, and the interpretation of this as a representation of a stage set from the early Empire period is now generally accepted. As well as the wall paintings, there are surviving statues and stone reliefs that appear to show theatrical scenes. The problem with these is that it's often difficult to tell if they're representations of Greek theatre copied from earlier works, or if they really do accurately represent Roman theatre. Some do appear to show the characters typical of the Roman stage, so they're worth a look. Where a relief shows a scene in front of an elaborate door with characters in what appear to be masks, it seems safe to assume that this is a representation of a theatrical scene, but again, it's an assumption. The scenes typically show characters in the middle of large gestures and somewhat contorted positions, suggesting a very physical style of acting. But again, it's difficult to know how much of this is for the effect of the relief rather than a reflection of the reality of the drama. I'll come back to the acting style in a bit, but first we need to deal with the question of masks. Roman theatre used masks for all main and speaking parts, but probably not for the minor and silent roles. There's been some suggestion in the past that not all Roman theatre was masked, but now these are generally accepted to be misinterpretations of early commentary. The masks covered the face completely and were probably similar to the Greek mask in construction, being made of wood, leather or linen. The various illustrations we have show the masks with wide open mouths, presumably to ensure there were no issues with vocal projection, and facial features modelled in a dramatic if not grotesque expression. 
Although the representations we have don't appear subtle, some commentary from antiquity suggests that the mask could include fine distinctions with, for example, a raised eyebrow on a mask being enough to mark out a character trait to the audience. They certainly played a major part in the identification of the stock characters, but were also used as part of the comic deceptions that pepper Roman comedy. A mask character could act against type and surprise the audience, and there are comic moments when recognition of a character engaged in a deception is by some other bodily feature, like big feet or hairy hands, rather than a mask type. In the 2nd century BCE, Pollux, who was a professor at the Academy in Athens, known for his rhetorical works, described 44 mask types. He was probably writing in in the context of Greek New Comedy, but it's likely that Roman theatrical masks were very similar. He describes the mask of a young woman on the verge of giving herself to prostitution as whiter in her skin, with hair tied around the front of her head to resemble a newlywed. Of the leading old man, probably meaning the aggrieved father character, he says, He has a crown of hair around his head, his nose is a little hooked, his face flat and his right eyebrow is raised. Having one eyebrow raised and the other lowered was probably used to suggest the different sides of the character, sometimes calm and reassuring as the head of the family, sometimes agitated and exasperated by the antics of his errant son. Of the old man character mask, he says, The long beard and wavy-haired old man has a crown of hair around his head. His beard is fine, his eyebrows not raised, he looks sluggish. And the good young man character is ruddy, athletic and tanned with only a few wrinkles on his face. He has a crown of hair and raised eyebrows. From this description, and with other evidence from Greek mask, it seems clear that masks included hairpieces of some sort and were coloured in ways to be obvious to the audience. We also see this in wall paintings showing Roman room interiors. It seems that it was quite a popular thing to decorate your living room space with a theatrical mask or two, so there is what appears to be some very good representations of masks in these pictures. Again, we have to allow for artistic licence, but they include attached hair, the wide mouth part, and clearly defined features that match with the other descriptions we have. In a social sense, the acting professionals in Rome were not held in high regard. Technically, they were classed as infamia, the social group that also included criminals, prostitutes and gladiators. As such, they were excluded from military service, which was a bad thing in Roman society, and denied some other rights that the normal citizen would expect. This, of course, is very different from the Greek world, where, in some periods at least, actors were seen as close to priests. This distinction was noted at the time. Cornelius Nepos, writing in the 1st century BCE, comments that in Greece, acting on the stage was not a source of shame, and that to win a competition could lead to great glory whereas in Rome, these actions were seen as a reason to remove civic rights and considered lowly and far from respectable. Indications are that actors tended to come from the lower or even slave classes, but as I mentioned last time, that doesn't mean that the individual actors couldn't become very wealthy through popularity and thereby gain some social standing. Looking at how actors functioned, we get some help from Plautus, when in the prologue to his play The Donkey, the call for the audience's attention says that the play could turn out well for the acting troupe and their master and hirers. Now that suggests that the actors worked for a master, perhaps a lead actor, who also operated as a producer. 
The actor-manager model springs to mind, or perhaps the relationship was more like a master and apprentice's. The relationship to the hirers is also unclear, although it suggests a financial interest by an organising party outside of the acting troupe. Perhaps the hirers are the organising magistrates or the sponsors that I've discussed before. As we've already seen, it was possible for actors to become respected within the profession and acquire wealth, so it's not that they were some sort of outcast from society. We've also seen the rich and powerful, even emperors, enjoying the theatre. But still, the idea that actors generally were, if not immoral, then of flexible personal morality seems to have persisted. And the mention of troupe here is interesting. It gives the idea of a group of actors working together in a longer relationship than in the Greek theatre. There was no three-actor restriction in Roman plays, and some require up to five speaking actors, who are all still men. Doubling up on parts means plays could be performed with less than five actors, and it's possible that non-speaking parts were taken by women. I may be reading too much into this, but with the presentations being mobile and other evidence of plays being taken from Rome to other cities, it's possible that here we're seeing organised companies of actors and other performers who stayed together and travelled for different productions. From another play we have a suggestion that the actors took the rough end of things. An epilogue says that after the show, the actor who fluffed his lines will get a beating while the others enjoy a good drink. I like to think it's said as a joke, but, well, acting has always been a tough life with visceral rewards and punishments, so who knows for sure. One thing we can be sure of is that Roman audience were very vocal and probably had little respect for an actor's feelings. Last time I gave a little background on Clodius Aesopus, the great tragic actor of his time. So before we look at the acting styles, I'd like to balance things up here and say something on the great comic actor Rosius. Both men were known to Cicero, with Rosius apparently a particular friend and particularly admired. Quintus Rosius Gallus was born in 131 BCE, just outside Rome, and into slavery, but was sent to learn the art of acting by his master when his talent for mimic was noticed at an early age. He excelled at the craft and was soon a popular sight on the Roman stage, noted for both his elegance of movement and superb diction and delivery. He mainly performed in comedy, where he became particularly admired for his performance as the parasitic character, but unusually he also appeared in tragedy. In 82 BCE, Sulla, quite a fan of the theatre by all accounts, bestowed equestrian rank on Rosius, an almost unheard of honour for a man born a slave. His friendship with Cicero resulted in friendly competitions to see who could better express a thought or emotion, the actor or the orator. At his height, it was said, Rosius could command a performance fee of a thousand denarii and earned up to 600,000 sesterces in a year. Not surprisingly, he died a rich man in 63 BCE, by which time his name was synonymous with dramatic excellence and beauty. As with Greek plays, the text of Roman comedies don't give any stage directions, but there are passages where one character is watching another and describes their movements. Here we see the mime and pantomime arts being used within the comic play, with one character acting through gesture, presumably following the description being spoken to the audience by the other actor on stage. This is from The Braggart Soldier by Plautus. He looks away, doing the calculations with his fingers. He slaps his thigh. Look how hard he slaps. He's trying to work it out now. Ah, see? See the way he snapped his fingers? He's got it. 
Cicero commented that of the two great actors of his day, of Rosius the comic actor, he would gaze and marvel and be astounded when acting surprise on stage, and that he would not make a single gesture on stage without having rehearsed it thoroughly first. Of Oesopus, that tragic actor who was brought out of retirement for the opening of the Theatre of Pompeii, he said he could deliver one line in a gentle, relaxed and unenergetic manner and follow it with the next with a force of energy that he would not have been able to summon if he'd not held back on the previous line. He adds that The actors have not discovered this before the poets themselves or indeed before those who make the music. By each of them something is held back and then increased, stretched out, inflated, varied and made distinct. So we can imagine a very demonstrative style, including both large and intricate gestures. Perhaps something that we would see as very stylized now, but it was a style that the Roman audience would have been more comfortable with. All their mass entertainments were on a very large scale, so all performers, from gladiators to actors, would have been projecting in a big way. And that's also true for politics and philosophy and education. Although orators thought themselves stationed well above actors and went out of their way to articulate the distinctions, it's clear that they shared many techniques of vocal projection and gesture. Marcus Fabius Quintilianus, an educator writing in the 1st century CE, directly compares styles of oratory to actors, noting that Rossius uses a fast delivery to keep the comedy moving along, and Oesopus gives a slower, more considered delivery, so that the significance of the tragedy could be conveyed. Orators, he contends, use the same distinctions of fast and slow delivery to articulate their points effectively, but the orator should not be the comic actor. He calls for moderation in delivery, saying, An actor on stage performs verse with hesitations, variations in his voice, and a variety of gesture and nods. The orator should know better, and not be too elaborate. The best oratory consists of action, not imitation. By action, not imitation, he means that oratory is a more serious art, as it has to argue a truth, unlike the actors, who are making an imitation of someone else's actions. So he sees a problem with some oratory being delivered in a manner that is too flowery and being too much like an actor performing with expansive gesture. That negative assessment of oratory perhaps tells us something about acting style of the time. And here, it's worth considering the style of tragedy particularly. We only have the plays by Seneca to go on, but Cicero, who was a keen observer of the theatre and particularly of the theatre audience, comes to our aid. The tragedies focused on larger-than-life characters in dramatic conflicts, and the rhetoric and delivery were suitably histrionic. The stories were, of course, the old favourites, and that familiarity perhaps allowed the actors free reign to act up as much as possible. Cicero tells of a performance of Iliona by Pacuvius. The play involves a ghost of a son appearing to his mother as she lies distraught. The ghost pleads for a decent burial. According to Cicero, the audience were in tears. The scene was familiar to them, but they were overcome not by the pathos, but by the skill of the actors. A great illustration of the power of the theatre, but then Cicero can't resist telling a funny story. During another performance, the actor playing Ileona, the mother of the dead son, fell asleep on stage and failed to respond to her ghostly son's pleas for help, at which point the 1,200-strong audience shouted out the next line in one voice, Mother, I cry out to you, and finally woke up the actor. Cicero also tells how another audience was moved to give a spontaneous ovation. 
The play was Crisis by Pacuvius that retells the Orestes myth. In a sort of Spartacus moment, bosom friends Orestes and Pylades display their virtue and devotion to each other by refusing to reveal which of them it was Orestes. It was their skilful acting that prompted the acclaim from the audience. But Cicero is not uncritical of the style. He points out that the character should be depicted through the whole of the actor's body, not just through the mask. Every word, he says, should be accompanied and underlined by an appropriate gesture. As already noted, the audiences could be unforgiving. Again, coming from Cicero, we hear how an ineffective gesture, a failure to observe the metre of the poetry, or a mistake by the musicians, would result in hissing and booing from the audience. Cicero comments on other actors too, sometimes in complimentary ways, but a recurring theme from him was that the often good acting was overshadowed by what he saw as the empty spectacle put on by the theatres. He cites the opening performance at the Theatre of Pompeii, where 600 mules were used to parade the war booty of Agamemnon across the stage. He notes that the audience loved it, and the Roman delight in these displays didn't wane. Horace mentions the distinction between the refined tastes of the equestrian class, who of course had the front seats of the auditorium, and the easily pleased majority, or as he puts it, the stupid, badly educated rabble. He describes how for four hours or more the army of extras played a returning army as they crossed the stage, both infantry and cavalry. They were followed by kings in chains, chariots and carts loaded with war booty. How can, he asks, voice ever be heard in above this din in our theatres? He continues that the actor who stepped out from this crowd was then greeted with a wall of applause without having said a word. Why this reaction, he wonders? Perhaps the audience were appreciating the latest fashion of his costume. I remember thinking something similar when I went to a musical on Broadway a few years ago and the star turn got a hearty round of applause for just turning up and walking on. Livy expressed similar concerns about the ostentatious wealth that the theatres had come to display. The insanity of which, he said, is now almost beyond the resources of a wealthy kingdom. The construction of the Theatre of Pompeii was clearly a game-changer, and although the new permanent theatres in their time and the contemporary theatres could never match Pompeii's theatre, there probably was an arms race in theatre decoration. It was a period when the wealth of conquest was flooding into Rome, and the rich were super-rich, so no expense could be spared. For Pompey and his later political descendants, the theatre was a place where they could be seen and be praised by a large crowd. Undoubtedly this was a validation of his popularity, which was the basis of his political power, and no doubt a huge boost to his ego. In the late Republic there was a change in the political structures, where those in power hung on to it longer than had been the case earlier in the Republic. Pompey and others may have only held official positions for the traditional year of term, but they were the power brokers at other times, and not that much behind the scenes. They needed to keep in public view, if only to remind up-and-coming rivals that they still held popular support. Supporting the extravaganzas financially and putting in an appearance to receive the gratitude of the crowd at the theatre and games was a good way of doing this. As the theatres were outside the old city, those in political positions who wished to show their support could do so without affecting their political position. So one way or another, the theatre became a useful tool in the fractious politics of the time. The same was true, of course, of the games, which were manipulated for political gain in much the same way. 
Cicero himself benefited from the political power displayed by the public. In 55 BCE, he had to leave the city in a hurry, when a simmering row with Plubius Clodius Pulcher, one of the most energetic and agitative politicians of his time, erupted. A law was passed to keep Cicero more than 400 miles from Rome, and his property was confiscated. At the games in the Forum the next year, one of Cicero's vocal supporters, Tribune Plubius Cestius, attended to test public support. He was greeted with rapturous applause, and it was said that the Roman people had never displayed such universal agreement over a single issue. On the other hand, Clodius Pulcher's brother, who was praetor at the time, tried to take his seat unannounced, but was soon spotted and booed and hissed so loudly that the gladiators were alarmed and their horses frightened. In the temporary theatre at the same games, a line in a production by Brutus by Lucius Accius caused the audience again to erupt into a show of support for Cicero. His middle name was Tullius, so when in a play the 6th century BCE King Tullius is referred to as securing his people's freedom, it was taken as a reference to Cicero's plight. The following year, the games produced similar audience reactions, and the Senate revoked the exile, despite opposition from Clodius Pulcher. Cicero's friend Clodius Aesopus was performing at the time, the good news for Cicero came through, and he contrived to point up every line where he could construe a reference to Cicero, much to the audience's delight. Cicero wrote that his friend performed with such feeling that even his enemies wept, and that he pleaded his case before the Roman people with far weightier words than Cicero himself could ever have done. It seems that the friendly discussions between them about who could make up the best argument, the orator or the actor, were resolved at a crucial moment for Cicero. Another important element in the actor's toolkit is costume. In Roman theatre it was a simple affair, but not without meaning. I've previously mentioned that the comedies were in a style known as fabula palliata, named after the pallium, a short cloak that was worn by most characters. This convention probably derived from the Roman perception of the Greeks, who wore a short cloak as part of their everyday dress. Given that the Roman plays are all set in Greece, it is of course appropriate, and it's another pointer to the influence of later Greek theatre on the Romans. Beneath the pallium, actors wore a simple tunic and some slipper-like footwear. Actors playing the roles of slaves probably just wore tunics and slippers. So the costuming was very simple, but had enough distinction in colour and decoration to assist with the recognition of stock characters. The rich man had a purple cloak, the debtor wore an out-of-date style to indicate his poverty. Old men wore white, the prostitutes wore yellow, perhaps signifying the colour of gold. The soldier also wore purple, but with a different style of cloak, the clamice, a longer, more covering cloak. The common character of the parasite wore a twisted cloak as an indication of character. Costume is also used as a disguise, as the plays mostly rely on deception for comic effects. So the young man, when taking on the disguise of the slave, pulls his cloak shorter or removes it altogether. Maybe he changes his mask, and the disguise is complete. Obviously, the audience is expected to suspend disbelief to a degree to play along with the joke. There's a preserved fresco in Pompeii that's thought to illustrate a scene from a play. A clearly masked man in a short tunic and a pallium, so the slave who typically rushes on with an urgent message, stands next to a young couple dressed in finer clothes. All three are wearing soft shoes and looking off to stage right. The slave, partially turned to look behind him, has an urgency about him, and the couple look concerned. Clearly, this is not good news coming. Perhaps it's the woman's pimp 
or the young man's disapproving father. So there's no doubt that they were specifically theatrical costume, not just daily clothes used as costume. The sponsor of the play provided funding for costumes and possibly the costumes themselves. In another bit of meta-theatre provided by Plautus in The Weevil, the main character leaves the stage to carry out one of his deceptions. And an actor, playing the sponsor, or maybe even the sponsor himself, comes on, fretting about getting payment for the costumes, mixing the perception of the honesty of the character with the honesty of the actor. He says, Hmm, it looks like he's a bit of a swindler. I'm worried I won't be able to get the costumes I hired back. But my debt isn't with that chap, it's with Fedromus himself. Still, can't be too careful. I'll keep watch. Fedromus is a character in the play, and the passage implies that he was played by the lead actor, who rented the costumes from the sponsor. The sponsor is called the Chorigus in another play, in a similar reference to providing costumes. That name is derived from Greek, although the role seems to be more as being that of a commercial producer, with the organising magistrates taking on the more civic parts of the role that the Greeks would have been familiar with. Props would also have been the responsibility of the lead actor to acquire from the sponsor. Much of the comedy relies on props like gold coins to hide, chests to be pulled this way and that, and then hidden, wedding gifts to be processed onto the stage, and a variety of items for one character to beat another with. We assume these were real, or at least represented with real objects. Much later collection, with illustrations maybe as late as the 5th century CE, so Although they're thought to be copies of earlier illustrations, we can't assume that they're accurate representations of what was actually presented on stage. As I've indicated before, music with singing and dance was an integral part of Roman entertainments, both comedy and tragedy. In the comedies, singing and dancing is often worked into the text explicitly, as the play ends with a wedding feast or party, in the style of Greek New Comedy. Some characters are taunted for their poor comic efforts at dancing, while others are complimented for their skills. When a character says he can dance like the Cenidae and the Ionians, he's referring to professional dancers who are known for their rhythmical suggestive dancing that involved the lifting of garments in a seductive sort of way. The word is related to catamite and sodomite, so the reference, depending on how it was played, could veer from the suggestive to the downright crude. And not to forget that the texts of the plays are all in various metered forms, so had a rhythmic pace that the audience would have been at least somewhat familiar with. Some of the different metres would probably have been accompanied by the tibia and sung rather than spoken, so perhaps about 15% or so of a Roman comedy was sung. At the more intense moments of a play, the metres change frequently and quickly, adding to the sense of urgency conveyed in the dramatic moment. It's a form that we can't appreciate so much in translation, so it's difficult to assess the overall effect of the rhythmical sections, which are varied and complex. After he returned from exile, Cicero commented that there were three places where the feelings and opinions of the Roman people on public affairs could be best expressed. At a meeting, at the assembly, and as an audience for games and theatre. The details of the theatre buildings may be uncertain to us now, and the performers and performances only seen through the brief reports of others. But we can see that in the big picture of Roman society, the theatre had a cultural and political place. In Rome, particularly as the Republic fell into empire, politics and culture were intertwined 
because the games and the theatre were a method of mass communication, not perhaps through the plays themselves, but by the nature of the huge audiences and their vocal participation in the entertainments. There's a vibrancy and a passion about Roman theatre that I for one did not expect to find when I set out on this investigation. For me, the character of the Roman citizen comes alive through the medium of theatre, as they are conducted and, yes, manipulated by the great actors of their time and the politics that were played out in the theatre. And I'm sure it's not the last time that I'll be making a comment like that. Next time, we get to the first of the Roman playwrights, with a look at the life of Plautus. He not only left us the oldest Roman comedies we have, but as you've seen in this episode, included in them many hints about how theatre worked in his time in a self-conscious way that's surprisingly quite modern. If you would like to support the podcast, please find us on patreon.com for additional content and transcripts of the podcast episodes, or at ko-fi.com if you just fancy tipping me the price of a coffee to say thanks. All contributions help to support the ever-growing library of research materials and are gratefully received. On the Patreon offering, there is now an episode featuring an alternate take on what it was like to go to the theatre in Athens in the 5th century BCE. It's a piece that I came across long after I'd presented my own version in episode 3 of the podcast, The Place of Seeing, and it focuses on the earliest of Aeschylus' plays, The Suppliants. You can get access to this and all bonus episodes and transcripts for the main podcast as soon as you sign up at patreon.com. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp.